Okay, we're going to be talking about, you know, what is Rosh Hashanah all about? And I thought that um, in order to be able to answer that question authentically, uh, we should look at the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah. We should look at what the prayer book says it is all about. Now, what happens, the way that the prayer book tells you what the theme of a given day is, is by the middle section of the Amidah. The Amidah, the prayer said while standing, is, uh, consists of three blessings at the beginning, three at the end, and then a middle section. Throughout the year, whether it's a weekday or a Saturday, or Shabbos, or um, one of the festivals or the high holidays, the, the, the Amidah is structured that way. The same three blessings at the beginning, same three blessings at the end. It's the middle section that changes. And it's in the middle section of the Amidah that we find out at least how uh, the rabbis understood the meaning of the day. And so what we're going to be looking at now is the, the Musaf on Rosh Hashanah, the, the, the uh, additional service, which is the one that is by far the longest uh, service on Rosh Hashanah. Um, and it's the one that is specifically additional for Rosh Hashanah. That's what Musaf means. It's the, you have the regular morning service and you have an afternoon service, one in the evening the night before, but there is an additional service, the Musaf, and it's in the middle of that, uh, of that Amidah where we find out what the, at least how the rabbis understood it. The Musaf of Rosh Hashanah is unusual in one way right off, namely that the middle section of the Amidah on a weekday has 13 blessings where we ask for different kinds of things. We ask for health and for uh, crops and for knowledge and for justice and things on that order. So in a weekday, you have 13 blessings in the middle of the Amidah, okay? On, on every other occasion, whether it's a Sabbath or uh, the new moon or Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot, it's always one blessing. Namely, we thank God for sanctifying the Sabbath day or sanctifying uh, the particular occasion, right? Like the, the new moon. It's only, and even on Rosh Hashanah, on the other, on the other um, services of Rosh Hashanah, in the evening, in the morning, and uh, in the afternoon, it also is one blessing in which we thank God for sanctifying um, the, the, you know, this day, the day of remembrance, as it's called. It's only in Musaf where you have three blessings. This is the only time during the year when in the middle section you have not one blessing or 13, but three. And they are the, the kingship verses, the remembrance verses, and the shofar verses. And we're going to be looking at those and saying to ourselves, what in the world were the rabbis trying to tell us about the meaning of this day through creating the Amidah in this way? Okay, do you get the game plan? Do you understand what the, right? And the reason why we're doing it this way is so that you don't have to, you know, say, what does Elliot Dorf say is the meaning of Rosh Hashanah? What you're going to be looking at is what the liturgy says. In other words, what the official people, you don't have to trust me, right? So it's what the official people have said the, the message of this day is all about. So what you have in your in hand is, um, are, are some Xeroxes from the middle section of the day. It starts with page 159. Everybody have a copy or next to somebody who has one that you can share? Okay, it starts with 159, and this is the Alenu prayer. <clears throat> you know the Alenu prayer primarily from where? When, where does the Alenu prayer appear based, most often? Yes, the end of Musaf, the end of the service. Right? You love the Eleno prayer because you know it's almost over. All right, anyway. Right? But, but truthfully, the Eleno prayer was, was imported from here. In other words, it was started being used at the end of the service only in about the 14th century. It was used before that time here. This is its original place. And notice what it says. We, we sing um, what's, what you have on page 159. And I'll give you a moment to just simply read it in English so that you remember what it says. So we're starting with, let us adore the Lord of, of, of all, and so on, until the congregation is seated. Okay, just take a moment and read that, all the way down through the end of the page. All right. All of this says, basically, is that we acknowledge the fact that that God is God, right? That God is the one who created the world, and God as the one who created the world is the one who owns the world. Um, that's something that, after the Industrial Revolution, that's something for us that's a little bit harder to understand because when, when we create things, often we're simply one part of a group of people 
that create things. But if you created something on your own from start to finish, you would then, then also own it. Um, we still have remnants of that, for example, in intellectual property. If you create an idea and then you patent it or you copyright it, it's a, um, not just the idea, but the, some product of the idea, then you are the owner of it. Well, in the same sort of a way, if God is the creator of the world, then God is the owner of the world. That's effectively what that is saying. But the thrust of it is in the next paragraph. That's the paragraph where we sit down and sort of mumble through it. But the real, the real point of the Elenu prayer is actually in the second paragraph. So if you will, flip the page to page 160. Because God is the owner, the creator and the owner of the world, we therefore hope in you, Lord our God, that we may soon behold the glory of your might when you will remove the abominations of the earth and cause all idolatry to be abolished. When the world will be perfected under your, your almighty kingdom and the children of men will call upon your name when you will turn into yourself all the wicked of the earth, may all the inhabitants of the world perceive and know that unto you every knee must bend, every tongue bow loyalty. Before you may they all bow and worship and so on. Because God is, is sovereign, therefore we have a basis for hoping what? That, I'm sorry? That he'll hear what we say, and that in this case, what does the paragraph say? We hope that God will, yes? Yes, God will perfect the world. That's right. So it, there are two things here. One is that God will perfect the world, and that God will get everyone else, including those, those observing idolatry of one form or another, to recognize God as sovereign, right? Now, what does that mean? What does that, so perfecting the, what do you think perfecting the world means? Getting rid of evil in a variety of different ways. Now, evil can be people who actually do bad things to other people, but it also can be hunger and ignorance and illness and all of those kinds of things, right? I'm sorry? Global warming, you got it, that's right. As a matter of fact, I just came from a place where, Get rid of the Yankees? <laughs> oh, you mean so that the Yankees? My son-in-law is, talk about idolatry. My son-in-law, <laughs> right, is a Yankee fan, I mean, to such an extent. What can I tell you? All right, anyway. <laughs> the, um, now, if it were the Dodgers, all right, anyway. <laughs> the, um, so, well, here we go. Um, all right, so the point is that the, the, the thrust of the prayer is that that we recognize God as, as singly God, as singly a sovereign, and because God is singly sovereign, we, can have, we have a basis for hoping that the world will get better and that everybody will ultimately recognize this God as sovereign as a way of making the world better, right? Um, because if there were multiple gods in the world, as was true and still is true for, in some religions, then what's the case? Then what happens is, and I think, think back to whenever you read um, Greek, Greek mythology or Roman mythology, right? If you don't get what you want from this god, then what do you do? Go to the next one, right? And where the name of the game is, right, you appease these gods in order so they don't bother you, right? And if you can't appease them, then you get some other god to defend you. Now when that, by the way, every child knows this story, right? <laughs> if you can't get what you want from mom, where do you go? <laughs> that and vice versa and mom and dad better get their act together pretty quickly or otherwise there is no God in their heaven right I mean there is right so I mean in the same sort of the, the notion of one God is basically that there is indeed a moral standard that it's not just what this particular God wants or that particular God wants but if there is only one God that's the imp that's the import I still re I, uh, I'm a philosopher right I have a doctorate in philosophy and I have a I had a graduate professor one time who said a, doc, a, a philosopher is a five-year-old child who never stopped asking why. And I still remember asking when I was taught back in Hebrew school a long time ago, one of the great things that the Jews gave to the world was the notion that God is one. And I still remember my asking my Hebrew teacher said, what's so good about that? <laughs> right? You know, variety is the spice of life, right? <laughs> why not more? Well, what it, the answer, it, the, my Hebrew two school teacher, unfortunately, did not give me an answer to that question, but the, um, I was, but the, um, but the, but the, I think the ultimate answer to it, or one of the ultimate answers to it, is that when you have one God, then you can have one moral standard. Then it's not just playing one God off of the other. 
then it is indeed, there is a sense of what's right and wrong, and there is not only that, but because we believe that God is good, there is reason to hope that, that goodness will ultimately prevail in the world. Effectively, this notion of one God is, is the ground for hope which is a, a major uh, characteristic of our tradition. Our tradition is not one that says that we are all sinners and that the, we can only be saved by a supernatural intercessor. That's Christianity, right? Ours is not one that says that the world is completely an illusion, it is, it is com which is Buddhism, right? With, that it's a completely an illusion and, it's a, and it's, a, it, it's a nightmare besides. And so therefore what you want to do is try to, to detach yourself from the world. Right? Our tradition is not that. Our tradition is very much involved in the world and very, very activist because, uh, because it is rooted in a, in a belief in one God that sets a moral standard and that in, intends, intends good for us. So hence, we therefore hope in you. That's where the Eleno prayer is ending here, right? That where we hope that all other people will also recognize this moral standard because only if they recognize this moral standard is there a possibility of getting rid of evil in the world. And then in each one of these three sections, the kingship versus the kingship, the, show, the, uh, the remembrance and the shofar, you have 10 verses from the Hebrew Bible. And as you can see from the bottom of the page, three of them come from the Torah, then three of them come from the third section of the Bible, the Ketuvim, usually most of them are from Psalms, and then three of them come from the second section of the Bible. You remember that the Bible has three sections. They are Torah, Nevi'im, the prophets, and, and Ketuvim, the writings. Psalms, the book of Psalms is one of the third sections of the Bible, and, and then the prophets are uh, in the middle section. So you have three from the Torah, three from the, uh, from the Ketuvim, uh, three from the Vi'im, from the prophets, and then one last verse from the Torah. And notice the last one in this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In all of the other nine of these verses, the word king is used, and that's the reason why this verse was chosen, because this is talking about God as sovereign. Right? How, did, how do you understand, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one? How is that a kingship verse? Yes. Because if the Lord is one, he's the only one. Right, exactly. So if God is one, one of the meanings of that is that God is alone in being sovereign, that there is no other sovereign. And so consequently, if God is one, it's God alone. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the, um, at the, modern, at the Jewish Publication Society translation, the Modern Jewish Society Translate, Publication Society Translation of the Bible, uh, which you will find in Eitz Chaim, which is the new um, Torah commentary that conservative movement is using, and also you will find in the Plout uh, commentary that Reform congregations use, you will find that JPS translates it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Right? Not the Lord is one, but the Lord alone because of the fact that they are, these two notions are very clearly intertwined. And, and the reason why the translation goes that way is because they, in context, that's really what the Torah was saying. No other gods, this one alone. And if it's this one alone, it is one God. And if it's this one alone, then there can be a moral standard in the world. Okay? Turn now to the next page on 161. Our God and God of our fathers, reign over all the universe in your glory, and in your splendor be exalted over all the earth. Shine forth in the majesty of your triumphant power over the inhabitants of your world, that every living form may know that you have formed it, and every living creature understand that you have created it. Right? What's the point of, of that? What's the point of if God, one of, the, one of the ramifications of the notion that God is sovereign is that God rules everything, therefore there can be one moral standard. Another ramification of this is that, therefore, we can hope that the world will get better. Okay? But a third ramification of the notion of God as sovereign is that every living form may know that you have formed it and every living creature that you have given it life. What's the, what's the point of that? What is that supposed to do with for us? That well, Yes, that God is one. And, and what about, what, how do we understand ourselves? We're subjects of God. That's right. And that should instill in us a certain 
Gratitude, respect, humility. Exactly. This is not just a discussion about the nature of God. This is very much a discussion about the nature of us. And so this third ramification of the notion that God is sovereign is that we ought to be respectful, we ought to be grateful, and we ought to be, have a certain sense of humility. It's, we are not the be-all and end-all of the world. Uh, the tradition doesn't see us as being worthless either. Quite the contrary, each of us is created in the image of God. And so basically what the tradition is trying to get us to do is what that old Hasidic story tried to get us to do. The, the story being that every person ought to have, this is Rabbi Bunam, ought to have two pieces of paper, one, one in one pocket, one in the other. And one that says, I am but dust and ashes. And the other that says, for me the world was created. Okay? And the nature of the way that you should think about your life, according to the Jewish tradition, is somewhere in between, right? It's not that you're just dust and ashes. You were created in the image of God. And you have a mission. More than that, you're created as a Jew. And you have a mission in this life uh, that we're going to be talking about in the next two sections. But beyond that, one has to understand that it's not you and you alone. Right? That you're not the end-all and be-all. You have to recognize, you have to have a certain amount of humility as well. So the third ramification of this notion of God as king right, is, the, is this sense of what that means for us. It means that we ought to have a certain sense of gratitude and humility, and at the same time a sense of hope, which was the second ramification, and a sense of morality, which was the first ramification. Okay? So far, so good? We're all together here? One, two, three? Yeah? Okay. We now move to the... And then you have... You know, the, the, um, the section ends with the blowing of the shofar. Okay? And notice, by the way, what the, uh, what the blessing is before we get to the blowing of the shofar. Blessed are you, O Lord, uh, King of the, over all the earth, who sanctifies Israel in the day of remembrance. That's the, that's the first blessing of the middle three. Right? Remember I told you... There are going to be three blessings here. The first one is very much like the blessing that you would have on Shabbat or the festivals, which is Mikadesh HaShabbat or Mikadesh Yom HaZikaron. That's exactly what you're getting here, okay? We move now to the second section. So if you will, turn the page. We're now on page 164. And it starts, You Remember. Right. By the way, I'm sorry for these Shakespearean English translations, but whatever. The, the Hebrew is actually much more direct. Um, but anyway, you remember, and this is the second section. It's called Zichronot, Remembrance. Now, when we go through this, what I'd like you to pay attention to is who is remembering what. Okay? The, the theme of this is remembrance, but, what, but the party who is remembering is going to shift during the course of, our, of this liturgy, and what that party is remembering is also going to shift. And so what you need to, to pay attention to is who's remembering what and what difference does it make. Okay? Play the philosopher a little bit tonight, to this afternoon. Okay, you remember what was wrought from eternity and are mindful of, of all that you have created from of old. So who's remembering here? God is. And what is God remembering? Everything he created from beginning to end, right? Before you is revealed all that is hidden and the multitude of concealed things from the beginning of time. There is no forgetfulness before the throne of your glory, nor is there aught hidden from your eyes. You remember each act committed, and no creature is concealed from you. So now what, who's remembering? Still God. God is remembering. But what is God remembering now? All of your actions. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're... I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. Anyway, <laughs> but, the, but what's the point of that? Right? Wrong religion. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's right. But what's the point of that? Uh, all kidding aside, I mean, I, I, mean I, I was just kidding a moment ago, but you can't hide. And, how, what do, and what does that mean ultimately? That's right. And therefore, what does that mean about you? Yes, do good. It means that you are ultimately responsible. One of the, those of you that are, how many, any lawyers here? Yes, good, okay. Only two or three? My goodness. All right, anyway, the... Um, 
Um, the, one of the things that, that uh, I've team taught at the law school at UCLA for 30 years, and one of the things that, and, and, you, and if you read Talmud, you get this also, one of the problems with law is that you have to, uh, have to sort of surmise what people's intentions were. Um, and you do that on the basis of some of the things that they do. Uh, in philosophy, this is called the, pr the problem of the privacy of mind. That is, that we can only guess what's in other people's minds. Now, sometimes we can have some pretty good evidence as to what was in their minds based upon what they did or said or something on that order. Um, so it's not as if it's completely, in other, what other people are thinking is completely, uh, is completely hidden from us. But on the other hand, we don't really know. For that matter, after Freud, we don't really know what's, what's in the depths of our own mind as well. Um, so, whereas God is supposed to know all of these things, and what's the, and, and therefore we are completely responsible. God, presumably, by the way, would know our good intentions even when we couldn't fulfill them. And the rabbis actually very different from Christianity on this issue. The rabbis have a very different understanding of this. God rewards you for all of your good intentions, even if you tried to fulfill them and didn't and didn't succeed. But on the other hand, God, being gracious, also knows when you intended to do something wrong but failed to do it. So, but that, then God does not punish you for, for that, that evil intention, right? You are only responsible for, your, for the bad acts that you've committed, not for your bad intentions. But you are rewarded for your good intentions if you made a good faith effort to try to realize them. This is a gracious God that Judaism has in mind. This is a loving God. Okay, but, it's, but God can do that because God knows what's in our minds. Okay, so God remembers creation, remembers the entire act of creation, and remembers who we are as people that are creatures of God. God also knows everything that is in our minds, okay? Continue on now. All things are manifest and known to you, O Lord our God, who looks and foresees to the end of all generations. For you appoint a time of memorial when every spirit and soul shall be visited and you shall, shall remember your multitudinous works and the countless throng of your create, create creatures. What time is that? Not yet. No, this is Rosh Hashanah. You know that in the Torah it is never called Rosh Hashanah. It's called Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance. Right? Calling it Rosh Hashanah was a later rabbinic invention. Okay, but the Torah itself only talks about it as the day of remembrance. And so the liturgy is saying, you created this time, this time of the year, every year, you, God, created this time for that kind of remembrance. To, it's, it's sort of a mark on God's calendar. This is the time where I have to remember my people and I have to think about each and every one of them. From the beginning did you make this your purpose known, and from of yore did you disclose that this day, which marks the beginning of your work, because the tradition sees this day of remembrance as also the beginning of the world, right, um, is a memorial of the first day. It is a statute for Israel and ordinance of the God of Jacob. On this day it is decreed which countries are destined for the sword and which for peace, which for famine, which for plenty. On this day every creature stands in judgment and is recorded for life or for death. So now what is God remembering? Yes, yeah, so your behavior from the last year, that would then be the, the, the basis for any judgment for the future year. Um, because, for before you appears the record of every person's deeds, his works and his ways, his thoughts and his schemes, his plans and the motives of his acts. Happy is the man who forgets you not, and the son of man who finds strength in you. For, for those who seek you never shall stumble, uh, neither shall they put, who put their trust in you ever be put to shame. So you're getting here a remembrance of creation, and along with a remembrance of creation is a remembrance of what we intended to do and did, what we intended to do and did not do, what we in fact did, okay? But now look, there's a, now a third kind of remembrance. You were mindful of your love of Noah and did remember him with a promise of salvation and mercy when you brought forth the waters of the flood to destroy all flesh because of their evil deeds. You remembered him, O Lord, and did multiply his seed as the dust of the earth and his offspring as the sand of the sea. What is God remembering now? Yes, and not just the flood, but the promise that God made that he would never destroy the world afterward. So notice what the liturgy is saying. You, God, remember creation. You remember all of our past deeds, but you also now have to remember your promise to Noah 
that you would not destroy us all again. So if you remember your creation, you have to know who we are. You, after all, were the ones that created us. So you have to know that you did not create us to be perfect. Right? This is basically saying to God, sort of sticking it to God, actually, saying to God, you created us this way, therefore you have to recognize that we are not perfect, and you have to remember the promise that you made to Noah. And so consequently, this remembrance ought to lead to what result? Forgiveness. Exactly. And then you have the forgiveness verses, and notice what they are. God remembered Noah and every living creature. The very first one is about that promise. And then flip the page to 165. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just with Noah that God has a, made a promise, but with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then I will remember my covenant, this God is saying, with the patriarchs, and I will remember the land. Right? God is, what's being quoted here is, I'm reminding God that you promised. Okay? You, God, promised you ought to keep your promises. Okay? Then, then the next verses. God, this is, these are from Psalms. God has made a memorial for his wondrous works. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Basically what the psalmist is saying, you have announced to us, God, that you are compassionate. Well, show it. Okay? In other words, these verses are really sort of in your face to God. The Jewish tradition in generally is sort of in your face to God. It's very chutzpahdik that way. Okay? But what these verses are saying is, you, God, announced yourself as a particular kind of God, and therefore you should fulfill your character. Okay? <clears throat> um, Go and proclaim so that Jerusalem may hear. Thus say the Lord, I remember for you for the devotion of your youth, the love of your espousals, how you went after me in the wilderness in a land unsown. What is God supposed to remember now? Yes, that we followed him into the wilderness, okay? So you should remember, God, not only the, cre the kind of creature you created and not only our own particular thoughts and acts and not only the promise that you made to Noah and to Abraham, but also the fact that we were loyal to you. We, we took a chance on you, okay? So you need to continue to take a chance on us. That's basically what's being said here, Okay? Um, is not Ephraim my beloved son, my beloved child? For even when I speak against him, I remember him with affection. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. Yea, I will surely have compassion upon him. Right? Another verse from, from uh, Proverbs, where, I mean, from uh, Leviticus here, from Jeremiah here, sorry, where the idea is that you, are, you identified yourself as being compassionate. Well, show it. Okay? We have this love relationship with you. You yourself said so. It is not Ephraim, who's, who's, who's Ephraim, by the way? Yes, Joseph's son, okay? And then later one of the 12 tribes, right? Ephraim, then it becomes the symbol for the entire people of Israel in this verse, okay? So is not Israel or Ephraim my beloved son, my beloved child? Well, if we are your beloved child, then treat us as a beloved child. That doesn't mean that you let us do anything you want, we want, because now think as parents, right? Parents who let their children do anything that they want. How do the children understand that? Is that love? No. What is that? Neglect. Apathy. That's exactly right. So God doesn't, is not neglectful or apathetic. God gives us rules, 613 of them actually in the Torah, and a lot more according to rabbinic interpretations. God gives us rules, and he does reasonably enforce them as a good parent would. God is not apathetic that way. Okay? But, but given that, it is still a God of love. It's still a parent who's not so much interested in the rules for the sake of the rules. God is interested in the rules for our sake, that is, so that we could be better people. Yes? Isn't this arrogance to tell God, you should remember this kind of stuff and act accordingly? Perhaps, but I have to tell you that is the Jewish tradition, right? I mean, when I... See, the problem is that, that Jews tend to think that the whole world is Jewish, right? Or at least that the whole world thinks the way that we do. Um, and, and it just isn't so. Um, I do a lot of interfaith work uh, with Catholics, Protestants, Hindus, Muslims, all of that, right? We really are a, 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 really a very different people. Um, and one of the things that makes us different is this willingness to be very upfront with God and to challenge God. I mean, Abraham does, Moses does, Jeremiah does, Job certainly does, and a whole series of rabbis in the Talmud do, right? 
Um, it's not a relationship in which God is sovereign and sort of, you know, just dictates, and that's the end of the matter. It's rather a relationship which is a very close relationship in which there is, in which God, get, in which God gets convinced to do otherwise by people like Moses and Abraham, right? So it's a view of the relationship between human, Judaism is a view of the relationship between God and the, and the people Israel as, a, as an ongoing relationship and as a close relationship in which sometimes each party can tell the other off, okay, hopefully in love, okay, and hopefully tactfully, but nevertheless in which each party has a role in that kind of thing. Okay? And, and hence the very tone that we have, even in terms of our own, you know, in terms of our own discussions. I mean, the Talmud is one argument after another, right? It's not passively accepting something, which is what you get in most other religions. In most other religions, you passively accept it. I, I, one of, uh, I've been on the priest-rabbi dialogue for some 30 years now, and one time, one of the, for a period of years, one of the members of the priest side of it uh, was asking questions that were far deeper than his fellow priests. And so I pulled him aside at one point. And I said, Bill, you're asking very philosophically astute questions. And the first word out of his mouth was, oi. <laughs> right? And, and so I said, why did you say that? He had gone to Catholic schools all his life. Okay? And he said when he used to ask those questions in school, the nuns used to tell him that for every question like that that he asked, he was putting another thorn in the side of Jesus. Right? Now, that's not our tradition, right? Our tradition is, to, is a very feisty tradition, and it's one that is respectful of God. Don't get me wrong, right? But, and takes God very seriously, but is one that is willing to challenge God, and in this case say, right, you are the parent, we are the child in this relationship, but you have, and you have a right to enforce the rules. But on the other hand, when you do so, remember your own character as you yourself announced yourself to us. Okay, and remember the promises that you made. Okay, this is not simply passive acceptance. This is, um, well, Moses as, acts as the defense attorney after the golden calf incident. And he acts again as the defense attorney after the spy incident. And that's really what the liturgy is doing here. It's acting as our defense attorney. It's saying, these are the arguments that we have with God or for God in God's act of judgment of us. Okay? And then the last one, for, your, for your, their sakes, their sakes being the patriarchs and matriarchs, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the, the nations to be their God, I am the Lord. If I'm going to remember the covenant, then, I, then basically what the liturgy is saying, all right, so, so, so fulfill what you said you would do. Remember the covenant and in, and in judging us, do it with, with love. Um, and notice the, what the, uh, how this ends on, the, on 166. You remember from eternity all forgotten things, and before your throne of glory there is no forgetfulness. On this day, remember in mercy unto his descendants the binding of Isaac, which remember is what we read on Rosh Hashanah, right? Why, are, why, does, why does the liturgy want God to remember the binding of Isaac? Only to be bound and not to be killed, but, got, but Abraham didn't know that. And nevertheless, Abraham was so trusting of God, right, that God did in fact bind his son Isaac, thinking that it meant that he was going to have to sacrifice him. Because in the ancient world, child sacrifice, especially of the firstborn son, was the common everyday phenomenon in most religions. So, so those, those uh, demands of God to Abraham to take your son up on the mountain and bind him, Abraham clearly understood in context that meant to, to sacrifice him. And Abraham was willing to go that far. So remember the faithfulness of Abraham as a way of giving us merit as well. This is called schut avot in the, Hebrew, in the rabbinic tradition. Remember the merits of our ancestors when you judge us. Okay? And notice the ultimate blessing. Blessed are you, not who remembers creation or remembers our faults, but rather who remembers the covenant. Why do you think that's the ultimate blessing? Because he has to forgive us if he does. That's right. And he has to remember that even if we really messed up, in the end, we're his. Right? That might be your child down there, right? But it's your child. Okay? And the, and the thing is, that, and, and basically what the liturgy is saying is that these remembrances 
are remem- God's remembering all of these things. God's remembering the nature of creation, remembering how God created us. God is, in fact, remembering all of our intentions and all of our deeds, but God also needs to remember the covenant that he, he created with our ancestors and the promise to Noah. And in remembering that covenant, God ought to then take our past deeds into that context. The, the thing that is important to see here is that the entire... Did you all hear the, the comment, by the way? Oh, if you didn't hear the comment, the, the, the covenant was not with individuals. The covenant was with the whole people Israel, right? So when God is remembering the covenant, how is that in any way, shape, or form going to help us, right, individually? Well, think for a moment about the, uh, about the liturgy again. The liturgy doesn't say, I sinned. It says, we sinned. It has, the entire liturgy is about us as a people. And that's very, very hard for us coming after the Enlightenment to think of. Because one of the things that the Enlightenment, I'm talking about people like John Locke and, uh, in the 17th century and Thomas Hobbes and later on in the 18th century, people like Rousseau. I mean, they got us to think of ourselves as individuals. We are sort of, we are individuals with rights. And by the way, the American side of us is exactly that. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What am I quoting? Declaration. Declaration of Independence, right. Jefferson basically cribbed that from John Locke, except he changed, it was, John Locke had life, liberty, and property, and uh, Jefferson changed it to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and there are all kinds of scholarly ink that has been spilled over that one. But anyway, the, <clears throat> the point is, for an Enlightenment philosophy, we are individuals with rights. And so as, an, as Americans, we think of ourselves as individuals. And in Yom, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we think of our individual selves as being the ones that are being uh, judged. Right? But the liturgy doesn't present it that way. The liturgy presents it as we as a group are being judged. And each and every one of, uh, one of us contributes to either the merit or the fault of the group. Maimonides has this, this image of a scale. Every single good deed you do adds to the good side of the scale. Every single bad thing you do adds to the bad side of the scale. But it's not, this scale is not just you. This scale is the whole people Israel. So you have, you have real duties here, not only to yourself in terms of your own welfare, but to your entire, the entire people. So that the way in which the liturgy is thinking about this whole process is on a communal level. You know what this is like? This is like Jewish notions of Kiddush Hashem and Chilul Hashem. Uh, I first learned this, I grew up in Milwaukee and I was at Ramah, Wisconsin for many years, and uh, both as a camper and then uh, later as a counselor. And I still remember Ramah, Wisconsin is in Conover, the closest anything is seven miles away, which at that time was called Conover, which is, we had a post office and a Dairy Queen. Um, and, and, but the nearest sort of halfway big town was Eagle River, about 14 miles away. So when counselors would have a day off, they would often go into Eagle River. And there was an ice cream store there called Zimpleman's. And so Bert Cohn, who was the, Rabbi Bert Cohn, who was the director then, um, was giving us this talk during staff week. And um, I'll pretend he was talking to me personally. He wasn't. He was talking to all of us. But he said, when you go into, when you, I'll say, Elliot Dorf goes into Zimpleman's, you need to know that it's not just you going into Zimpleman's, but because the only Jewish camp in the entire area at the time was Ramah, it's you, the Jew, going into Zimpleman's. So every, uh, your, char- your, your behavior there is not just, it doesn't just reflect on you. It reflects on the camp, and it reflects on the entire Jewish people. Okay? Talk about guilt. <laughs> all right. Anyway, but, but it also is, but it all, I mean, what he was trying to get across to us is that, is, is that we don't really, I mean, and this is, I think, a real insight of the Jewish tradition, very much contrary to the Enlightenment notion, we don't exist as individuals on isolated islands. We exist within communities, and we very much, our, our own fate and our own, and our own uh, honor are very much functions of, that, of those connections to the community. That's the reason why we always are very, prou- uh, very proud when some Jew really makes it in something or other, right? And, re- and the reverse, we also feel ashamed when some Jew has done something terrible, okay? That's because we're connected. 
And the Jewish tradition really sees, has a very strong sense, very, very different from the Enlightenment. This is the Jewish side of us as opposed to the American side of us, right? The Jewish side of us very much sees us as being part of a community. And we are part of a community for good and for bad. And so hence, remembering the covenant is remembering us as a community. Exactly right. And it's all of us individually as, as part of a community that are, uh, that are judging our own selves and, and, and asking God for love and for forgiveness on the high holidays. It's both and, right? It's both every single creature, which you saw in 164, good, and it also is us together. Why? Because us together are not, is not some platonic entity. Us, to, us together consists of each and every one of us individually. So hence that Maimonides uh, symbolism that I was just talking about before, right? What each of us does either contributes or detracts from the, the score, as it were, of the group. And so consequently, you're, what the Jewish tradition see, uh, understands is, A, each and every one, uh, individual one of us counts and counts very importantly. But B, we don't count only on our own. We count in terms of what we contribute or take from the communal record. And so it's really both and as the, as the tradition sees it. Okay, yeah. That's right. We stand up as a group and we say for this, the sins that we have sinned in doing this, that, and the other thing. Right. Now, I mean, again, the American side of us, which is thoroughgoing, and me as well as I'm sure everybody here, right? The American side of us just doesn't get this, okay? Because we're used to thinking of ourselves very, very clearly as individuals. It's not my fault. Okay? How many, when your kids, right? Never, never mind. All right, anyway. Um, okay. But the, but the point is, the point is that, that you're, you're, what you do is, in fact, connected to everything else, that, you know, to the entire community, and it has an effect on the entire community. And, that, and so consequently, what the Jewish insight is, is that it's both and. You are indeed an individual, and you are responsible for your own actions, but it's not, doesn't end there. It also is that you're responsible for the community, and the community is responsible for you. And it's a tightly internet, you know, it's a, it's a tightly woven internet, really. The problem of evil is, I'd love to be able to talk to you about it, but that would take us days, okay? Um, but you're right. I mean, part of the, all of this is, um, is very much tied into how do you understand the problem of evil, the Holocaust, What's harder for me is not that the Holocaust is a terrible thing, don't get me wrong, but, but there at least you, can, you could say it's primarily human beings that chose very badly, right? But what, what about a three-year-old kid who dies of leukemia, right? That, that kind of thing is the problem of evil for me even more poignantly than the Holocaust. But you're right in terms of, of this kind of stuff. I think it's just blasphemy to say that the Holocaust was a function of the fact that particular Jewish communities weren't observant. Uh, aside from the fact that it's just wrong. I mean, the, the Jewish communities that suffered most were Dafka, the most, the Frum communities, right? So how do you figure, how do you do that one? And, and whereas the ones that survived were largely the not-so-Frum communities. So the whole, the whole way of understanding the Holocaust that way just makes no sense whatsoever, aside from the fact that it's absolute, well, never mind. It's just nasty. Um, okay, let's move now to the Shofarot verses. Okay, 169. You reveal yourself in a cloud of glory into your holy people. For the heavens they heard your voice, from the heavens uh, they heard your voice, and you manifested yourself upon them in clouds of, of purity. The whole world trembled and, at your presence, and your works of creation stood in awe before you. When you, O our King, revealed yourself on Mount Sinai to teach your people your law and commandments, causing them to hear the majesty of your voice and your holy words from flames of fire. Amid thunders and lightning, you revealed yourself to them, and you did shine forth upon them as the shofar was sounded. Now, that is the link. Sinai included shofar blasts, okay? It included thunder, lightning, earthquakes, sound of God, all kinds of other things, right? But it also included shofar blasts. Now, the shofar has many meanings in the Jewish tradition. The one that you're probably most familiar with, with is the one that Maimonides gives, because every rabbi talks about it, what you, and it's in the liturgy. What, it, what is that meaning? The, to wake up. Exactly right. Which is the way that Maimonides understands it. It's, the shofar blast is there to, to wake you up to the seriousness of this entire endeavor of the high holidays, right? 
But the, but the shofar also had a number of other meanings, and you're going to see them. In, one of them is to remind us of Sinai, which is the one that you got in the paragraph that I just read. Okay? And now we have the shofar verses. Again, three from the Torah, three from Psalms, then three from the prophets, and then one last one from the Torah. Um, it was the third day in the morning. I'm on 169. There was thunder and lightning, a dense cloud over the mountain. So this is the shofar blast at Sinai. And the second, the second verse there is also Sinai. And all the pre- people perceived the thunders and lightnings of the voice of the shofar. So those are the three Torah verses. He manifested himself with the sound of the shofar. The, sh- the Lord emits the sound of the shofar. With trumpets and sound of the shofar, raised joyful voices before the, the king, the Lord. This is already now a different use of the word shof- different use of the shofar. What is this, a use of the shofar? Yes, it's a musical instrument to do what? To accompany us in... And praising God, yes, okay? Sound the shofar on the new moon and on the full moon of our festival day, for it is a statute for Israel in ordinance of the God of Jacob. What is that doing? The shofar there is not doing either of the two things that we were just talking about, three things. It's not waking us up. It's not, uh, it's not a remembrance of Sinai, and it's not a, uh, you know, accompanying us in praise of God. What is it doing? It's announcing, yes, and it's announcing an important time. Okay, it's announcing the fact that, this is all before calendars, okay, it's announcing the fact that this is an important day, okay? All right, good. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, this is all the 150th Psalm, and you praise God with a number of different instruments, the shofar among them. All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth, when a banner is lifted on the mountain sea and when the shofar is sounded, hear ye, hear ye about what? Look at the next page. On that day, a great shofar shall be sounded, and they shall come who were lost in the land of Assyria, and they who were cast away in the land of Egypt. And they shall bow down to the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. What day are they talking about? Messianic times. Exactly right. The shofar here announcing not just an important occasion now, like the new moon or the new year, but the shofar announcing or heralding the the messianic time to come. Now notice what, and then ultimately, what is the blessing here? Blessed are you, O Lord, who in mercy hears the shofar sounds of your people Israel with all of these different meanings. Now notice what this does. The fact that this is an ordered liturgy after all, right? We started out with talking about God as sovereign with all of the ramifications that I talked about in terms of what that means. We then go to God and in the past, right? God as sovereign is in the present. God now in the past, the, the remembrance verses. What, what does God remember of times in the past? Creation and our deeds and the promise to Noah and the covenant. And now in the shofar verses, you're looking at the future in the end, right? You're looking toward messianic times. So effectively, what the shofar verses are saying is we have an ultimate, the shofar is, is calling us to our ultimate mission. Well, what is that ultimate mission? It's a mission to make this, to help God in making this world, back to the Elenu prayer, right? It's a mission to try to help God make this world a world in which the various negative pieces of this world don't exist. It's a, it's a mission so that what you have here is not just by accident in this order, right? And it's not just by accident that they were, they were chosen for this liturgy. It's because the liturgy is trying to tell you some very, it, it, it really is, is progressing from one to the next to the next. God is sovereign in this world. God remembers what happened in the past, and therefore, in the future, you ought to act that way, right? You ought to act on the basis of that knowledge of God as sovereign, that, that knowledge of the fact that what you do has, has, um, it has remembrances, that it doesn't get just lost somewhere in cyberspace, and that, it, and that, that then imposes upon you a, both a hope and a duty for the future. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yisrael, the very word Israel, means he, stro- he strove with God, right? That comes, that, that Jacob is renamed Yisrael after he strives with the angel, right? And we are one of the things, actually it's my favorite image in the tradition, um, we are the children of Jacob and sometimes are called B'nai Yaakov. But much more oftenly we're called B'nai Yisrael, right? And what's the difference between Yaakov and Israel? It's the same man, 
right? But it's after he strove with God that, it, that he became Israel. And, and what that is is an image for us, I think, of what we are supposed to do in life. We are supposed to strive with God. Sometimes that's rather chutzpah but sometimes, but we're supposed to strive with God and with human beings in order to try to make this a better world. That's the kind of mission that we Jews feel that we have in our world. It's not individual salvation from sin, a la Christianity. It's not to remove yourself from the world as much as you possibly can, a la Buddhism, right? It's not to make as much money as you possibly can, a la Adam Smith. Um, it's, it's rather what you're supposed to do is, is, um, is help God make this a better world. All right, I have to stop now. If you'd like one of these books, they're $25 each. This is The Way into Tikkun Olam, which is exactly what I've just been talking about. In other words, trying to make this a better world. It talks about what in the Jewish tradition asks us to, uh, to fix the world, not in social ways, in terms of things like poverty and war, but also in personal ways, in terms of your relationship to your spouse, your relationship to your children, your relationship to your parents. This is Matters of Life and Death, a Jewish approach to modern medical ethics. Anybody interested in issues at the beginning of life, issues at the end of life, distribution of health care, all of that. This is To Do the Right and the Good, a, modern, a, Jew, approach, a Jewish approach to modern social ethics. This is chapters on um, communal forgiveness, by the way. There's one chapter here um, that came out of the priest-rabbi dialogue. They asked us, uh, this is about 10 years ago, what would it take for the Jewish community to forgive the Catholic community for what it did and and failed to do during the Holocaust. Well, that's part of it, right. So, so what this chapter talks about, and what we realized was, as it happens, all of the priests and rabbis around the table were born either, were children, I was born in 43, I'm 64, you don't have to guess. Um, the, um, the, uh, I was born uh, either children, infants during the war, or were born after the war. So we, were, we did not really have the moral standing to forgive or to ask for forgiveness. So what then does it mean in terms of the next generation, and, and, and how do you deal with that, with that guilt and with that, and that miasma? So there's a chapter in here on that. There's a chapter on war, Jewish understandings of war, um, and the ethics of war. There's a chapter on poverty. There's a chapter on, um, on American uh, Judaism in terms of national politics and the relationship between religion and state. Anyway, that's the social ethics book. Uh, this is Love Your Neighbor and Yourself, a Jewish approach to modern personal ethics. This has a chapter on privacy on the Internet. It has a chapter on sexual uh, uh, ethics. Uh, it has a, a chapter on family violence. It has a chapter on hope. I'm not remembering all the chapters, but there they are. And this is The Unfolding Tradition, Jewish Law After Sinai. This has, is a book on uh, theories of Jewish law, a variety of different theories of Jewish law, what is a theory of Jewish law in the first place, and then, uh, and then a variety of different theories of Jewish law, primarily in the conservative movement, but then with, uh, with, um, uh, with comparisons to orthodox and reform theories. So if you'd like to get one of those, I'd be happy to sign them. Thank you. <laughs>